Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what I'm doing. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast. The friends will be along in a few moments. Uh, a bunch of you seem to like the semi-live version of the podcast that I did on my birthday, so I'm experimenting with doing more of this. If you don't like this version, uh, sorry. We'll be back to normal next week, probably. <laughs> so, uh, how was everybody's holidays? Mine were pretty good. Uh, no major family drama. Uh, my birthday celebration was fun. I mean, it's a tricky time of year for mental health because you're, it's peaks and valleys or uh, swings and roundabouts, as a friend of mine once said. Snakes and ladders. Shoots uh, and ladders. I like snakes and ladders so much better, even though it doesn't really make sense. Like, shoots and ladders makes sense. Oh, uh, let's see. Current, current, current events. Uh, I saw The Rise of Skywalker, and I did not like it. At some point, I will probably write a piece on all the problems I have with that movie, but it all has to do with the filmmaking style and, like, the sort of things that just felt like any other piece of modern cinema. I didn't really have any major problems with any specific character things or plot that happened in the movie, but it all happened too fast. Maybe this is what getting old feels like. Anyway, there. I've commented on something in the current cultural zeitgeist. Let us speak of it no more. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less, including these 11. Who imposed this rule? I... Me? The Committee by Samnala Ibrahim. As a lifelong fan of speculative fiction, I often find myself craving strange stories with unsettling prose. That's what this book is. In the grand tradition of Kafka or Poe, the Committee, in less than 200 pages, manages to create one of the most unsettling and yet also darkly comic stories I've read in years. This was an assignment for a class at school, and I'm so glad it was, because I never would have found this odd little novel otherwise. Set in a country reminiscent of Egypt in the 1970s, the book follows the tribulations of the narrator as he seeks to gain access to the titular committee. As he goes deeper into their world, things become gradually more and more surreal, and also in a way, funny. It's an unsettling atmosphere that never fully goes away. If you're looking to get outside your comfort zone with books in 2020, this is a great place to start. I cannot recommend this odd little book highly enough. It is my favorite thing I read in 2019. This mic cable wrapping around my leg, super annoying. There, I've moved it out of the way. Sorry if that made weird noises. Uh, 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 uh. There, ha. Huh. Uh, this is going to be my chat, uh, with my dear friend, Mike and Knapp. We grew up together. We've known each other since we were little kids and it's so great to have him be a guest on the podcast. We actually recorded this like three or four months ago, but because I don't talk about current events, really, uh, it still works. So I hope you enjoy my chat with Mike and Knapp. So I'm sitting with my dear friend, Micah Knapp, filmmaker, film scholar, really, and uh, one of my best friends since I was, I think we were 11 when we met. 11 years old, yeah. It's been a while. So how's it going? Good. Thank you. Thanks for having on the podcast. Um, film scholar is a, is a high, uh, high bar to set, but... Uh, well, yeah. you, you kind of set that bar when we were kids. Uh, some of my earliest memories of us hanging out are like going to a video store, looking at all the video cassette boxes and you being like, that movie sucks. And me being like, have you seen it? No, I've read that it sucks. <laughs> I had the uh, Roger Ebert uh, um, book uh, anthology. So I think I was, you know, 
yeah reading reviews and like critics at the standard for what i was wanted to watch yeah i remember those those huge books it was like imdb it was like a pocket it was like a giant paperback book like four thousand pages yes. video movie guy like the full guy like how do you how do you see that many films for one thing yeah it's i feel bad for the the people working on that because so many of the movies they're like one star and i remember the time that like the the star rating thing was so important to me like how many stars the film got and as i got older i was like how does it like how does it define how good a film is or like what the film even does for you as an experience you know well the, and then the things that are like in the mid the mid-range especially like because <laughs> right. like four stars is like okay it's a good movie or, or like yeah. one star half a star whatever it's a bad movie right. but, but then the movies that like get two stars it's like what does that mean right is it some films like the room for example they're so bad they're good uh-huh. or you're missing the ones that are really entertainingly you know you still have a good time watching them right yeah it feels like to me and i'm i'm sure you feel this way too that the movies that you connect with the most deeply are not the most empirically best mm-hmm. like i really love the Guillermo del toro hellboy movies yes. but i would in no way argue that they're empirically the greatest films ever made nor do they have to be for you to right. to enjoy them yeah um also, I think having a free pass at that video store, Crazy Mike's Video in Bellingham, which is gone now, unfortunately. Um, knowing the owner, we had like a connection there. So we would go in and get like free rentals and I got to know them. So by the time I was like 13, I had I could rent R-rated movies and go in by myself and not have, you know, I could get any, rent anything I wanted. So I think being a, a film nerd and then skipping school to go rent movies is like film school for me yeah there's like five movies at a time you know right i remember like when we were kids like yeah 13 14 and i'm like you know wanting to watch a movie that has boobs in it and we're like at the video store of like how about this and it's like you know uh i don't know total recall or something something i've heard has boobs in it and you're like no let's rent this it's like empire of the sun (laughs) it's like these Two 14-year-old boys, like, staying up until 3 in the morning watching Empire of the Sun or, like... Empire of the Sun or uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey or yeah. Schindler's List, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it was, like, it was just always, like... But I did, at the same time, at, like, a young age, I did, like, for some reason, was, like, inspired and obsessed with films that, like, had this emotional impact. Mm-hmm. And because those are the kind of movies I wanted to make. And I remember, like, a cousin making fun of me. We used, to, we used to make movies together because I said, uh, I don't ever want to make comedies. I want to make, you know, dramas or whatever. But I was, I was serious. It was just the way it came across. Um, there was something inside me that wanted to tell, like, stories that are more real or, like, raw and, you know, yeah, well, impactful. So I think that's what it was, too. And that's the that's an interesting thing that kind of, like, the landscape of film when we were first starting to be aware of it 20 years ago mm-hmm. was very strictly delineated. Like, the sort of, like, mumblecore comedies that get made now by, like, Noah Bumbach. Yes, yeah. Where you have comedic things happening, but it's still a largely dramatic story. You know, it doesn't have to be comedy or drama that's being made. It's just, like, a very human story. Yeah, exactly. There's something more real about those kind of films, in a way, because life does have comedic moments and dramatic moments intermixed. So I like, yeah, the ones that embrace that side of it, you know? Yeah, because, like, life life is like that. Exactly. You know, as much as I think it was disastrous for uh, for Jerry, what was his name? I'm totally forgetting his name. The comedian. Um, uh, Seinfeld. No, not Seinfeld. Before Seinfeld. Oh, uh... Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis, yes. You know, as disastrous as it was for Jerry Lewis to make The Day the Clown Cried or whatever, that movie where he's like doing comedy in a concentration camp oh right you know that it didn't work and the world wasn't ready but then roberto benini came along and made almost the same thing mm-hmm. life is beautiful yeah like yeah. 20 years later and it, it it was a film that that somehow captured like this kind of kernel of humanity in a horrible situation that's a great that's a great film to bring up too yeah i think yeah there's just something about the idea of using film as a empathy tool or sort of, you know, being able to make you feel a certain way about a certain specific thing. That is very true. 
I want to go back a little bit though. You were talking about like how just you rented all these movies and that was how you kind of came to know film. You didn't go to film school. Mm -hmm. You learned film by consuming film. And it's interesting that the generation that we are a part of in terms of people who create film is also the Duffer Brothers and um, Daniels Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so on where we could pick what movies we were watching and we could seek out films in a different way. Whereas the generation of, you know, Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino, they maybe had VHS like as teenagers, but they were still tied to that watching movies as reruns on TV. Exactly. Or going to see revival showings and like under art house cinemas and things. And our generation is the first generation that has had access to the full catalog. Mm hmm for our entire awareness. That's a great point. Yeah, it's like it changes the f- the film experience because I remember I think it was yeah, I read interviews with Kevin Smith and you know Steven Spielberg and Quentin Tarantino who were all so not anti film school but were like you don't need to go to film school like watch film, study film, mm-hmm. buy a camera, go out and make right, shoot stuff and then you know make connections and and do it yourself. I think that's that was the method that I was sort of taking after or seeking. And so I thought that by watching films and studying how they were shooting things. And then of course, back then it was like before when we were shooting before there was editing tools, mm-hmm. digital editing tools, we had to uh, edit in camera. So you had to sort of pick the shots you wanted to shoot. Right. And watching films and watching the edits and the cuts and how they, how it, how it you know, flowed as you watched it, how it was, you know, we'd go to a wide shot and then a medium or a close up, whatever. And then going out with a camera and shooting that kind of thing, you know, uh, replicating it. Right. Helped to sort of, you know, like right away experiment and test and see how it, how that worked. Yeah. That whole learning by doing thing I Mm -hmm. think is so powerful. And I, I'm always shocked when I encounter people, especially now who are like, well, I've always wanted to make a movie, but I don't have the stuff. Oh, hang on. Someone's calling me on my iPhone seven. That's what I love about. I think it's Soderbergh now. He's been uh-huh. he's made two or three films on an iPhone. Yeah, and of course Tangerine. I forget the director's name. He made a that Tangerine film on an iPhone with uh-huh. a like adapter lens. But it was like, you know, it was a good film because he had a good story, which is the important part. But the tool is just an extension of how you you know right how you want to make it. But you you have more than any time ever now the tools to make anything you want to make. There's no excuse really. And yet, people will still come up with them. This, the Sort of speaking of the technology that we have now and kind of tying into that, you know, when we were young and we were seeking out movies, we still had to leave the house, go to a place, find the box, you know, Physical find the store. Yeah. Whereas now, like, there's... I guess to back it up a little bit, it was such a ritual for us that we would walk down to crazy Mike's and like walk up and down the stacks and we had to pick something to take away with us yes. or maybe two or three things. And a trip there as we sort of like talked about what we're going to do, what we're right. going to watch and like the whole, it was thing. this whole ritual that took, you know, I'd say on average it took two hours yeah. total. I have multiple times been a part of a small group of a couple people who spend two hours scrolling through Netflix Mm-hmm. And don't accomplish anything. And I never felt like our walks and video store browsings didn't accomplish something. Like, I don't know what the difference is there. But, like, I guess I don't even know if this is really a question. This is just more of a statement. Like, I think something has been lost Mm -hmm. in that way where everything is instantly available now. Even if you have to pay $3, which now people are like, oh, I got to pay three more dollars. I don't want it. Yeah, I think there's something about the the uh, instant gratification that we have now, and everything's at your fingertips. That sort of kills a little bit of the uh, can kill the creativity. You know, it's like before, like we had to make an effort to do all these things, mm-hmm. even to shoot and not be able to edit it afterwards. Right. It kind of pushed you to actually be more creative than now, where you're like, oh, I'm overwhelmed by options. But now, what do you? To the point where you don't even do anything. And I've seen people have that issue. Yeah. It's, it's something that, like, I read this book about food, and they were talking about how, like, the modern grocery store has 50,000 items or something like that, whereas a grocery store 100 years ago had maybe 
maybe five, six hundred. And probably local. Yeah. More fresh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's like human beings can't handle having too many choices. Mm-hmm. It's like the same that you're a creative, I'm a creative. When someone comes to us and says, what is your dream thing that you want to make if you had infinite money to make it? And it's like, uh, you can make anything you want. Right. Uh, it would be a, about a, a character <laughs> yeah. who has an adventure. Right. Like, you know, it's just like, it's like that. Whereas if someone would come to one of us and say like, how would you like to make a movie about a kid who has an exploding violin? It'd be like, oh, okay, I can actually, like, I could think about how I would do that. What would you do with a billion dollars? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so as an end joke. Uh... It was like some old guy in town, like, 20 years ago, who was a wanted to be a producer or was a producer. Yeah, I think he had produced, it was like a, some sort of Disney spinoff thing that was like a Christian uh production company that i think the film was they raised like a million dollars for it that's the only thing he'd ever done but he'd made a million dollar movie and he asked i think he proposed to ask that question what would you do with a million dollars i think your brother jake's answer was get as far away from you as i can <laughs> but yeah that's it, that's a tough one because if if you're creative like us you have so many different ideas and i mean we've made projects yeah kids on flying vacuum cleaners going to hell that you know were ambitious for what we had you know yeah and i think that that aspect of reaching beyond is help is good Mm -hmm. it starts somewhere well yeah because i mean at a certain point like you look at tim burton's early films for instance and they're just exploding with wild creativity exactly yeah and then you look at his films now where he can literally put anything on screen exactly and it's they're so boring and flat and it should be the opposite you have this like master visionary director, but you just don't get anything out of it. Speaking of uh, making whatever you want, you're in the middle of producing a movie. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a indie feature length movie called Eleven Eleven, and we're halfway through shooting. We have uh, one week left of production next month. Enough that. You know, yeah. Oh no, this will, it'll it'll air. You'll probably okay. be doing it right as this airs. Actually. Oh, great, great. Yeah, mid August, we're we're finishing the film. We started it on a very small budget last summer and have sort of shot it um, on purpose through different seasons to give different looks because the movie jumps around in time a lot, and um, it gives it sort of a, a bigger look. And all the locations we're shooting down through eastern Washington, close to California, uh, we'll hopefully give it a bigger. Uh, production value look and in size and scope so nice yeah i mean you're making this super white knuckle though i was at one of the shooting days a few months back and it was it was a very small crew and it was like really fast setups i mean i've i've been on a few film sets and you guys were moving fast does that appeal to you because you can be in the moment and sort of like follow instincts more as opposed to doing like very rigid setups yeah i've seen i mean i've i've worked in different productions i've seen different sets i i've seen filmmakers work different ways and i've always liked the idea for our film we're using a lot of and it was something i talked about with my dp but uh we're using a lot of natural light um kind of inspired by you know terrence malick Lars van trier type films um just because there's a sort of more of a natural raw aesthetic with that doesn't feel like a you know overly lit high key or low key production um so i think the idea of shooting fast but efficiently you know having Mm -hmm. it planned out prior pre-production is when you should be uh have your work done you know ducks in a row prior planning prevents piss poor performance i think (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah it's um I think that day that you were there, we, we, sh- we were shooting at a Catholic church. Mm-hmm. I think we had a crew of 15 that day or so. Uh, and then we had, we got 50, I think, extras or so. Yeah. And, and that was like the biggest day of the shoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've gone from like uh, crews like that to days where we have like six, six people on crew. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think because we're, we're, you know, we're choosing locations in a way that we can sort of, we don't have to do a lot of set decking if we do, it's minimal. Right. So we're doing it this way where we're, we're trying to, to utilize the uh, 
locations and situations to to create it instead of you know because we're working with what we have basically so without getting into spoilers what is the story of this film it's a fantasy uh, no <laughs> it's about a kid with an exploding violin <laughs> That's um it's a it's basically a story about a father-son relationship and uh, the idea that I sort of proposed to come up with it was how would you, if someone you were really close to that you had a, a strained relationship with passed away, how would you deal with that if you never resolved any of the issues or conflict? It's about an estranged son basically that's uh, moved away from his religious upbringing, kind of moved away from that lifestyle. And when he learns about his father's passing away, he decides to go on a road trip back to his old hometown uh, for the funeral to, to uh, process this whole thing. And so along the trip, he's sort of uh, reliving memories of his childhood and growing up the way he did. And um, it's basically about forgiveness and letting go of, of negativity and letting go of these things that you hold on to um, that hold you back, I guess, is I, kind of the theme. And is this like a, a per, this is a personal story for you in some ways, because you were your dad was a preacher for a while when you were a kid. Yeah, I'd say it's there's there's bits of my life, but I would say it's like I took if I took people around me that I've known and stories I've known of friends of mine or family and put mm -hmm. it all into a blender. So it's not completely about me, but it's it's drawing from the idea of of definitely growing up in religion and and for myself moving away from that. But it's not the the uh, father in the film is not my father by any means. Um, it's it's not about him. Right. Uh, some of the relationship stuff in the movie is not about me. Um, there's, it's a mixture, but it's definitely, it definitely draws from that idea of, uh, people who grew up in a religious home and have kind of moved away from being religious, which I haven't really seen. I haven't really seen that tackle in many movies, that idea. Yeah. Not that, like that. Yeah. In cinema, there's a lot of either people coming back to faith because mm -hmm. there's this idea of this reconciliation narrative mm -hmm. or, of the moment people decide to leave faith but there there isn't a lot of exploration of what i guess would would be the middle ground that the you know i've, I've read the screenplay of your film and it it takes place in that middle ground where mm -hmm. it's somebody who's who's left but is not necessarily negative and spiteful no. back toward it is just somebody who's like this is not for me this stopped being where i was at yeah, and it's he he turns away from it not because of the religion itself, but because of his father, the way he you know these issues he had. So mm -hmm. it was kind of a reaction to that more than yeah. anything. So the movie is not anti-religious or pro-religious. It's just kind of that's the theme in the movie. Because mm -hmm. I think it's an interesting one that I, I know a lot of people that have that grew up that way and have turned away from it. So it's I thought it'd be interesting to talk about it in a movie. And I'm glad I'm glad you're <laughs> talking about it because it 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 speaks to my experience as well with sort of yeah. moving away from religion. So I'm, I'm one of the reasons I started this podcast mm -hmm. was I really wanted to showcase artists or art that were sort of outside of the norm, the straight white male sort <laughs> Perfect. of classic. I don't know why you're here, but I <laughs> know what am yeah. I good for anymore? But, but I, I think sometimes, you know, having, having, um, voices of people who are, allies and who are cool I, I i've seen the the crews that you hire and you're hiring women and people of color and you're just hiring people based on merit like you're actually hiring people based on merit and giving people a chance to work above their pay grade by getting them to volunteer and work <laughs> above their pay grade uh, you know you're, you're on your way to being a uh, part of the solution i guess we could say uh well i would add to that that i you know obviously this is a a low budget film that there is a lot of volunteer work, but I do also work in freelance full time and I am hiring people a lot. So I am a, um, what's the, what's the term the Republicans use? The, uh, job creator. I am a job creator <laughs> and I have, I do hire people, uh, for gig gigs, uh -huh. you know? So I just want to make that note. Cause yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's totally fair. <laughs> so, you know, even though you aren't necessarily representative of, the direction that I hope film culture is going, mm -hmm. you are definitely someone who, in my experience, is part of helping it move that direction. So I always ask my guests for recommendations of artists or films or things that are, again, outside of that sort of 
what traditional mold and uh, might give people a window into aspects of life that they hadn't known about or culture mm-hmm. or race or things like that. So are there any films that you would recommend? Well, first of all, I think uh, what we're trying to do with this and what I like doing in general is, is making experimental mm-hmm. films because I like the idea of sort of trying to push people or make them sort of think in a different way mm-hmm. or challenging people. I like the films I enjoy watching are ones that actually do that. They're not traditional movies. They're ones that like they're outside the box and they're very unconventional. Small experimental films that only cost a million dollars. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but no, I like the idea of, you know, like sort of, it's kind of like what you do with your performance. Mm-hmm. You're sort of testing the audience. You're pushing them. You're trying to break them out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not there just to sit there and watch. You try right. to draw them into it. Right. So I feel like I'm, we're kind of trying to do similar things in that way. Mm-hmm. And not as much with this movie, but in, in general, I like the idea of trying to do that. Because mm-hmm. that's, that's what I think art should be. And of course, you have popcorn movies and movies you go right. just, just to enjoy. But the kind I want to create are like that. Um, but anyways, to answer the question, you're saying what what, what films do I think are, would I, would I recommend mm-hmm. that I've seen recently? or Yeah, or ever. Oh, man. Um, just experimental projects? Sure. Yeah, just things that would... would reach outside of people's comfort zones and and this i know this just came to me but the seven up series is a really interesting experiment i took i think it was british kids Mm -hmm. uh and it was you know well-off families i think or maybe it was a mixture yeah they the school that they drew them from had quite a span of class i think that which was why it was they did it it was like a school that like allowed poor kids to scholarship in or something like that. But they were all seven. Okay, in yes. The first, first film. Yeah. So they they documented them. They asked them. They were really smart too. They more intelligent than I think some college kids have yeah. heard talk. But they they um they interviewed them about just different questions. You know, where do you want, want to be when you're older? Like, where do you think you know where are we headed in the future? All these all different questions. The job mm-hmm. market. Where what life is going to be like. And then they interviewed them every seven years, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And I think they've gone up to their 50s now, I think, or somewhere around there. Yeah, I think uh, they're 50. They either just did 56 mm-hmm. or they're about to. Yeah, I think I just think it's a genius idea because it's, you know, you can only really do that through documentary mm-hmm. unless you're, you know, Boyhood by Linklater. But that's not the same thing. Right. Um, but this um, this idea, I think, is really interesting because. I think documentaries have the potential to really break those barriers that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's a great series that I would recommend because I think it, I don't know, it gets, it gets you thinking and it's, you know, it's sort of a, uh, you can see them progress through their lives and change and see, you know, compare it to when they were kids, how right. similar or, you know, how much things have changed since then. So that's a great one. I think uh, Baraka, I mm-hmm. always recommend that film. Um, I'm inspired by it, especially because 1111 is similar in the sense that it's told through just visuals and music mm-hmm. and not dialogue. And Baraka does that better than any film I've ever seen. It's, have you seen it before? Yes. Yeah. Okay. But for those who haven't seen it, it's essentially just images around the world and shot in 70 millimeter mm-hmm. that are breathtaking and amazing and beautiful. And it's just, it makes you feel so much just from looking at those images and just, you know, these, uh, remote locations you would never maybe get a chance to go to right and um that film's amazing too so i like films like that that are uh sort of inspiring in their own way that mm-hmm. are outside the box all right but you know that's just a couple there's so much so much more to recommend but oh yeah for sure so i guess uh as we're sort of wrapping this up mm-hmm. if you have any sort of parting thoughts or recommendations of stuff to check out or anything like that yeah i think actually i think what i want to say depending on who's listening is just i always hear people like i already get hit up and ask questions like how do you because they'll see through my instagram or facebook or whatever that i'm shooting all these things or whatever uh-huh. like how do you like how are you doing that like how do you how do you make you know, make money doing that or how are you getting those jobs or right. clients or whatever and the thing i see is like i see so much talent and people young, younger than me that I think are really have, have a lot of talent and there are uh, so much potential there. And I think people are held back by the idea of what they can't do. They think mm-hmm. or think they can't do. Right. Or like, I don't know how to do that, but it's like just the idea of creating and keeping sticking with it and, 
and um, continuing to create and push yourself that anything is basically possible and that you can keep, you know, if you have goals or passions or ambitions, you can reach them. You're the only person stopping yourself. And I think I see a lot of people doing that. Mm -hmm. So I just, I think we want to inspire people to just pursue it and and just do it. Just do it. Like uh, Shia LaBeouf said. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, I I, I see that all the time with people people in their early 20s or a little younger. Mm -hmm. They don't think they can do it or they don't know how to. And there's people who I think want you to think that. And I don't think that's, that's true. It's kind of like what you're doing, you know, you're just yeah. doing it. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, just doing, <laughs> do it, it, do it. <laughs> we're both just doing it. And we always, we kind of have, since yeah. we've, we've known each other, we just do it. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and thank you. Uh, come back anytime. Thank you. And just do it. That was my chat with Mike and Knapp. You can find out all about him and his projects and what he's working on by following him on Instagram at Micah Knapp. M-I-C-A-H-K-N-A-P-P. Micah Knapp. Here's a thought. I'm quitting TV. While that may not sound like a particularly difficult thing to do in the age of cord cutting and online streaming, that's what I'm going to do. When I say TV, I mean online streaming, YouTube, and movies and shows that I've downloaded from the internet. I'm starting to spend more and more time thinking about the ways in which I consume anything. Not just media, but food and personal experiences. I'm trying to reconsider how much agency I actually have in my life, how much intent is actually going to the things I do and consume. About a year and a half ago, I started the project of cutting internet pornography out of my routine. I don't really have any moral problems with pornography per se, but the consumption of it as something that was not intentional had started to bother me. I had noticed that it had become something that was almost Pavlovian. I was alone. I was in my room. My computer was there, etc. Getting a smartphone about five years ago actually made the problem worse because now I had a much more convenient way to explore secret corners of the internet. This coupled with the never, the, oops. yeah, I, I should edit that, but I won't. There, you're seeing, you're seeing the seams. This coupled with the ever more mainstreaming of illicit material made for an atmosphere of meh. I never want to feel meh about anything. So I started working on cutting it out from my routine. It's interesting that I worked on all of this alone long before I found Gary Wilson's excellent This Is Your Brain on Porn. It's a fantastic book that I cannot say enough good things about. Seriously, if you're thinking of quitting anything, alcohol, overeating, whatever, check this book out. He's got some interesting thoughts from the cutting edge of neuroplasticity research about what creates our patterns of behavior and how to change them. Needless to say, the journey has been an interesting one, and I've learned heaps about myself in the process. So what does this have to do with what I'm collectively calling TV? I think it has to do with the ways in which TV has become a Pavlovian consumption as well. When I get home, or when it's finally time to be done with work for the day, I find myself wanting to watch a couple of YouTube videos. I was just talking to a friend about this, and he has much the same experience. When he gets home from work, he doesn't crave a beer, he craves a couple of YouTube videos. And that's really the problem, isn't it? We were so excited when cord cutting started happening because we had control over what we were watching again. Netflix was something that allowed you to be selective. There were no commercials, there was just the content. And you could intentionally consume the content by picking out exactly what you wanted to watch. Except, that's not exactly what we got, was it? Instead, we ended up in a world where everything turned into giant binges, and the idea of not paying attention to what you were consuming became the norm. A whole season of a show could pass in the blink of an eye, and I doubt I would remember much of it. My transition to YouTube made the whole thing worse. Instead of sitting down to a film or even a long television episode, I now found myself seeking 10 to 20 minute chunks of entertainment. What entertainment? Didn't matter, as long as it was tangentially related to my interests. Why not spend 45 minutes watching size comparison videos of science fiction creatures or different incarnations of Godzilla? Never mind the fact that I never really cared for him all that much, it was just something to have on. 
This mindlessness of behavior really started to sink in for me when I got an extension for my Chrome browser that allowed me to turn off YouTube's autoplay feature. Instead of YouTube giving me the next video in the algorithmically generated list of content that it thought I would like, as I found myself manually choosing the next video, I started to notice a modicum of engagement returning. I started looking at the video length and considering if I really wanted to watch 30 minutes of marbles rolling around. This is why I decided to quit watching internet TV. I wanted to rebuild my attention span even more than I already have. Between quitting internet porn and always taking a book to the bathroom instead of my mobile phone, I've done quite a bit to pay more attention to what I'm putting into my eyeballs, but there's still a long way to go. I've already canceled all of my streaming services. Amazon went away after I watched the expose on last week tonight and realized how skin-crawlingly awful their next day shipping was. The others I canceled the day after my birthday. I know some of you are wondering how this is going to work exactly, so let me spell out a few more particulars, caveats, provisos, etc., ad nauseum, and so on and so forth. I'm not going to have a computer at home, which means the only thing I could even watch videos on will be my cell phone. I hate that. And since I don't know how to block adverts on YouTube on my mobile, it's not going to happen anyway. I will still have a computer here at my studio, though, which I can use for the exceptions listed below. The exceptions. Number one, anything I need to watch for Pilot House, my podcast with Sarah Shea. Two, anything I need to watch for a class. I just hope I don't ever have to watch Triumph of the Will again. That film is, ugh, let's just say it earned its title. Triumph of the will. Triumph of my will that I managed to get through that f***ing movie. Number three. Anything I bother to go and get the physical media for. If I want to rent a DVD of a film I've been meaning to see, then that's okay. As long as I have, as, you know, I'll have to watch it at my studio or in a common area of my house, thus preventing me from crawling into my room and surfing YouTube terrarium tutorials until 4 a.m. Four. The cinema is always allowed. If I bother to put on the little red shorts and run around in the rain, I can watch whatever I want. Number five, the friends and family clause. If someone wants to make plans to watch a specific film or TV show with me, that's a-okay. I'm undertaking this project to increase my attention span and build up my social stamina. If friends want to go down, get down with some Star Trek, that's cool by me. But we're not going to spend an hour scrolling through Netflix talking about what we could be watching. We have to pick something within five minutes or we're not watching anything. Them's the rules. So there you have it. I'm quitting TV and it's going to be interesting to see what fills the time. Maybe I'll actually build a terrarium instead of watching videos of someone else do it. I need more coffee. Hokey fright. Have you heard about Electra? Ostensibly, this 2005 film is a sequel to 2003's Daredevil, but apart from starring Jennifer Garner reprising her role as Electra Nachios, Nachios? Ugh, that name. There is no connection. I have heard for years that this is a terrible film, but I cannot for the life of me figure out where the specific terribleness is coming from. Sure, the whole thing is infused with a kind of mid-aughts feeling of cheapness, but it's no worse than, say, an average episode of Smallville from roughly the same era. If I'm being honest, I actually kind of dug this weird movie. It has problems all over the shop, but the basics are something fun. Electra is some kind of ninja assassin with the ability to see the future, which allows her to dodge impossibly quick and even avoid death on multiple occasions. She's dealing with some trauma from her childhood, and she's got dark secrets, as do those around her. Eventually, she must face her fear, confront her past, and kick all the ass along the way. Oh, and it's a Christmas movie. <laughs> Take that. And it's supposed to be Christmas around the Pacific Northwest, like out in the San Juans and whatnot. So there's no snow. It's just cold and raining. Go figure. This movie is more accurate than most about that. What's interesting to me is that nothing in this plot would probably be out of place if Elektra was a male character. This is the kind of movie you would have seen Jason Statham or Vin Diesel in at the same time period. Recasting the character as female is a fun reversal and sheds some interesting light on the lone badass trying to hide from the world genre. Some of Garner's acting in the scenes where a normal life is dangled in front of her is actually quite touching. She's really trying with this material. And some of it seems to be fun, though at the same time, according to rumors, she was 
only completing contractual obligations after appearing in Daredevil, so take that as you will. Oh, and there's no weird scene where a gross villain holds her down during a fight and, like, licks her eyeball or whatever. You know the kind of scene I'm talking about. It's pretty much always dumb, and it rarely adds anything. I also really enjoyed the fact that the film at no point holds your hand or explains anything. In many ways, this is the thing us geeks always say we want from comic book adaptations. Almost nothing is explained. Why can Elektra see the future? Who cares? It makes her a badass. Why can that dude's tattoos come to life and attack people? Who cares? It makes him a badass. Why is this little girl important? Who cares? She's a badass. Why is this guy an amazing ninja? Who cares? He's a blind badass, played by Terrence Stamp. We don't need everything explained if it's fun and entertaining. We'll roll with it. Why? Because magic ninjas are badass. This film is pure and simple mid-aughts nonsense in the vein of films like Triple X, Blade Trinity, or The One. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for flicks like this. Mid-tier action dreck that was produced for PG-13 audiences during the exact period of time I was a PG-13 audiences. If you're looking for a throwback to that era of films with a little bit more to offer, this might be a fun watch. Suggested drinking game? Every time someone says a variation of The One chosen one or special girl wait that might actually be dangerous i'm gonna wait for the song of the week until the end of the episode you'll understand why once i get there resolution update I uh, talked about resolutions during my birthday episode, and I've sort of solidified them, and I have six resolutions that I'm going to uh, share with you, and they are thus. Number one, read Moby Dick. Number two, learn to understand my carbon footprint. Number three, finish lessons. That's lessons in the language of finish, not finished lessons. Number four, quit TV. Number five, make at least 36 episodes of this podcast. Number six, read 52 books. So those are my New Year's resolutions. If you've got some interesting New Year's resolutions you want to tell me about, you can write to me about them. Which brings us to... Mailbag. I got a bunch of Christmas cards uh, between my birthday and uh, now... I got one from Tim Mannix. Hey, Tim. I also got one from Hitchcock and, uh, wait, who was it? Where's that envelope? Hitchcock and Lynn. Happy Christmas, Hitchcock and Lynn. I also got a New Year's card from my podcast wife, Sarah Shea, and it says, Happy New Year. My 2019 was better because of you. Love your podcast wife. I love you too, Sarah Shea. You're the best. And finally, on the mailbag portion, I got this uh, postcard from a listener. This is from AJ up in Vancouver. Ah, the dreaded... uh, Sorry. It's a photo of a dog riding a tricycle with a cat on the dog's head. And the cat is holding like a balancing pole. And there are mice doing uh, juggling and acrobatics on the balancing pole. I'll, as always, post a photo of this postcard on the Instagram. So AJ says, ah, the dreaded 399 level reading and essay courses. Daredevil Mouse would approve. I took three of those in the same term once and it turned my brain inside out. Guess what, AJ? I'm taking four of those next quarter. Uh, Not entirely unlike the time I saw two fringe shows in three days. Two fringe shows in three days, I guess, is a lot for the average person. I think my personal record in a three-day stretch is... 16 fringe shows what is wrong with me oh my god no wonder my brain is a bowl full of mush seriously it's like grits in there sorry aj uh no way out but through really hang in there and i and don't be shy about academic ranting it's your show oh boy howdy i aj just because you sent that in a postcard, I will probably read all of you my final paper from one of my classes last quarter. I, It could be fun. We'll see. Uh, then AJ says, ha, 
Lost this in my bag and found it again after finals. Happy birthday. Thanks, AJ. You are literally the only person to wish me happy birthday through the post. Like, I didn't get any birthday cards in the mail this year. Everybody just texted. And when people texted me, my I got this new Google phone and people text me, happy birthday. And then the Google phone's suggestion was, thanks, you too. Like, good lord, what is... Who's that? Happy birthday. Thanks, you too. Like, yeah, I don't even need to wish you a happy birthday because I said thanks, you too, on my freaking birthday. Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh. Finally, AJ says, I put off reading Moby Dick for ages and then it wound up being way more awesome than I'd hoped. I hope so too. AJ says, try Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. Don't see the Hitchcock adaptation. It pulls the teeth completely. Utterly chilling technically a happily ever after brr awesome thanks aj for the for the the postcard and uh yeah i'm gonna read moby dick i'm gonna fucking do it so uh yeah that about does it for this week's episode of strangely and friends the podcast if you like this sort of weirdness that i've been producing and you want to support it, you can head on over to patreon.com slash strangely to uh, become a subscriber and help me make more of this. It's I, I could have made it a monthly thing, but I made it a per episode thing because I don't feel comfortable getting money from you folks if I'm not making podcasts for you. So like this month, there were only two because after my birthday, I got sick for like two weeks. I had a horrible sore throat over Christmas. It was fucking terrible, but I'm back in it. I'm back at it, and uh, yeah, I'm making the podcast. If you have a question for me, or you want to tell me something, or get me to read a joke on air, you can send that to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. I look forward to hearing from you, and thanks so much for listening to this podcast. Here's to a great 2020. All right, guys. Okay. Did you hear about the claustrophobic astronaut? No. He just needed a little more space. Oh. Do our astronauts get wasted after missions? <laughs> no, where? At the space bar. Do <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know any more space jokes? Do I know any more space jokes? I don't know. Does uh, uh, it run a theme now? Right. Uh, oh, oh, here's one. This is this is an old. This is a. a, a why why is a is a space rock better than an earth rock why because it's a little meteor (laughs) nice i don't think you can surpass that we're whalers on the moon we carry a harpoon but there ain't no whales so we tell tall tales and we sing our whaling (laughs) mike and i do get get on don't we oh i love that guy we have so much fun so uh, I'm going to close out the podcast today a little bit differently than usual. I'm going to sing the traditional New Year's song, Odlin Sai. And uh, I'm going to attempt to sing the traditional Scots, uh, Scots bits as well. And uh, I'm sure a bunch of you folks who are mates of mine in Scotland are going to write me and be like, strangely, what the fuck, mate? But here we go. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and Odlin's For Odlin's me chuck for Cup of kindness yet for Odlin's And surely you'll be your pine stop And surely I'll be mine We'll take a cup of kindness yet for Odlin's Chuck for all the inside. We'll 
take a cup of kindness yet for all mankind. I'm so sorry, Scotland. We twain have paid old the brain for morning sun till die. But seas between us bring heralds in all Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.